This is Martin McKay from the Network Security Podcast. And this is Chris John Riley from the Eurotrash Security Podcast. And you're listening to the official podcast of the first 2011 conference in Vienna, Austria. To find out more, please visit the site at www.first.org. And now we join our interview in progress. on the show, I'm lucky enough to be joined by one of this year's first keynote speakers and somebody who's been described recently in the WikiLeaks documents as a security rock star, Mikko Hippenham from F-Secure. I started off the interview by asking Mikko about his presentation at the upcoming conference. In my keynote in first 2011 in Vienna, I'll be speaking about the last 25 years. And the reason why I chose 25 years is, of course, that today... In 2011, it's going to be 25 years since the first PC virus, Brain.A. And Brain.A is, well, it was not only the first PC virus, but it was also one of the most widespread viruses for the first 10 years of the malware history. Earlier this year, I actually went on a trip to find the orders of Brain, which I did. I went to Pakistan, to the city of Lahore, and, uh, and I tracked them down and uh, I spoke with them, asked them questions, including... How do you feel about starting this whole problem 25 years ago? And uh, they were really—they <laughs> really weren't sure what to say about that. And uh, I also found it found it interesting that they were um, these guys had been infected with other viruses multiple times over the years, and they always felt bad about it because they felt that they had started the whole problem 25 years ago. But of course. Since Brain, we have seen massive shifts over and over and over again, not just shifts in who writes the viruses and, and, and Trojans and backdoors and other malware, and not just shifts in the motives of these attackers, which have went from curiosity all the way to serious money-making. But of course, we've also seen massive shifts in how malware spreads and what the technologies used in, in viruses and trojans have been, starting from these early attacks like Brain and Choshi and Form and Vsign, viruses spreading on floppy disks, which basically means they only spread when people travel carrying around three and a half inch or five and quarter inch floppy disks with them. Well, of course, they eventually died because floppies died. And then we went to the era of file infectors, basically parasitic infectors of executable files, which would spread from one computer to another when people would swap files on, on any media. Then we started seeing viruses infecting document files. These were known as the macroviruses, infecting your Word documents or Excel spreadsheets or PowerPoint presentations. And then we entered the era of internet, and we started seeing email worms, web worms, worms like Blaster and Slammer and Sasser and many others. And today, of course, the most typical way of getting infected is the web. You're most likely getting infected with a Windows computer while you are surfing the web and just happen to click on a link which takes you to a owned page, which... Well, nowadays, it typically won't own your operating system or not even the browser. It's typically one of the plugins and add-ons. Think Flash, think Java, think QuickTime, think Adobe PDF Reader, things like that. But in a sense, that's not really where the game ended. We are now seeing more and more examples of state-sponsored activity, both espionage 
and sabotage are going online. And these are being done by state-sponsored actors. We've been watching internet-borne espionage for a number of years. So the first case that we analyzed in our labs in F-Secure in 2005, and we now know that there were already cases before that. And today we see somewhere between two to 3,000 targeted espionage cases a year. And of course, that's only a subset. Most of these, we believe, are state-sponsored. And of course, spying has moved online because spying is the act of collecting information and today, information is on computers and on network. And um, while we had been working on those attacks for a number of years, I guess we still weren't ready for what was to follow, which was Stuxnet, which I do believe continues to be and will stay in the history books as a major game changer and possibly the most important malware we've seen in a decade. And there's been so much spoken about Stuxnet and, and conflicting opinions and nobody really wants to go on the record saying where it came from. So let me just go on the record. I believe U.S. government wrote Stuxnet. And I believe that when in 2008 George W. Bush signed a cyber attack program against the Iranian nuclear program, the end result of that signature was Stuxnet. And I do believe the target was the Iranian nuclear enrichment facilities. But for an example of the kind of criticism against Stuxnet that we've seen includes comments that it wasn't as evolved or as complicated as it could have been. It didn't use much code obfuscation. It wasn't encrypted, stuff like that, and which is absolutely true. And I absolutely think that wasn't a coincidence. I think it was like this on purpose. And the logic here is that our company, like all the major antivirus players today, rely heavily on automation. We try to detect unusual samples it's fairly easy to detect the difference between clean files and malware. Malware is complicated, encrypted, obfuscated, has anti-debug mechanisms, tries to fight back. Normal programs don't. Guess what? Stuxnet looked like a normal program. In fact, it looked like some sort of an installer for some sort of a factory automation program, complete with signed device drivers it was installing. So most automation systems used by anybody in the, in the business would have, in most cases at least, categorized Stuxnet as a clean file. A good example of that is that Stuxnet was in the wild for almost a year, and everybody missed it. We missed it, which is embarrassing, but that's the truth. So I don't think it was a coincidence that it wasn't encrypted and obfuscated and didn't have all these anti-debug mechanisms. That's what saved Stuxnet from, from, from detection. And I do believe that Stuxnet will not remain alone. There will be copycats. This might actually very well be just the beginning. If you look back and see what's been happening in, in military and defense for the past 50 years, well, we've seen a huge revolution, technological revolution. Think about what the Second World War looked like and, and what kind of technology armies use today. I do believe we have a as large revolution starting right now, a information warfare revolution. And it's clear, because I spent quite a bit of time speaking with different armies and defense people, they are all so happy to tell about all the research they do regarding cyber attacks and how to defend yourself against the cyber attack and, and all that. One thing they don't want to speak about, though, is what they're doing themselves regarding cyber attacks from like developed by themselves. They all always speak about defense. And we have to assume that any 
developed nation is researching both online defense and online attacks. What we're seeing right now is a uh, cyber arms stockpiling starting. Maybe we will still, during our lifetime, see cyber disarmament. We'll see. Well, there's uh, so many so many points there to dive into. I mean, is, is there any kind of physical evidence that you've seen behind Stuxnet that you can kind of point to to say this is definitively a, a US-born uh, virus or attack? Or is this more of a more of a feeling that it's the only place it could have come from or the only place with an advanced enough program to be able to create something like this? I think the, the smoking gun has to be the, the actual program started by George W. Bush. That would give a clear motive and a clear agenda, clear budget. Yes, USA would be one of the few places which would have the know-how to do something like this, and they would have the motive. And if you think about it, think about from the point of view of United States government, they they want to do something about a nuclear program of a foreign state. What options do you have? Well, option number one, you can go to war. And wars are never nice, especially since USA is already fighting three wars at the same time, if we count Libya as a war. Option number two, you can do a surgical strike. You can send a B-52 and bomb the facility that you think should be bombed. That's a pretty tough call as well. You can't really deny it afterwards. Everybody knows it was you because they saw you. Then you also have to know what to bomb. You have to have good enough intelligence that you know where the targets are. Which leaves us with the modern option, which is... um, online attack or something like Stuxnet, which first of all gives you plausible deniability. We still don't know for a fact that USA did it. I believe they did, but we, I, can't, I can't prove it. I, we, I think we probably won't be able to tell the truth until maybe somebody leaks the evidence to WikiLeaks or something like that. But it also gives you um, the added benefit that it will find the targets that you don't even know about. Stuxnet is a worm. It, it's, it's a worm. It continues spreading. And it spreads in the pockets of the nuclear researchers who most likely work in all the facilities where they might have, for example, enrichment. So, yeah, we know that one of the targets was the Natans enrichment facility. We don't know if they have other enrichment facilities somewhere else, maybe deep underground. But it's highly likely that some people will be traveling between these facilities and the infection will spread to even the facilities you didn't know about. And it would work in there as well if it would be an identical setup. It's very interesting to see that it's kind of come full circle. You started talking about the Brain A virus, which was predominantly spread by floppy disks, and then you come all the way around to Stuxnet, which is a targeted attack on on nuclear plants, which in, at least in part, by USB keys to try and get offline systems that don't have internet access. It's kind of interesting to to look at how things change, but they come back to, to how they started. I absolutely love how, how we've done a full circle here. Oh, maybe not love is not the right word, but I, I do find it fascinating. And you're absolutely right. And, and by the way, Stuxnet, there's only two spreading mechanisms, USB sticks and then local uh, shared printers, the vulnerability in local shared printers, which means Stuxnet does not spread over the internet at all. And, and that's not the only similarity between Brain from 1986 and Stuxnet from 2010. The other one is that they are both rootkits. If you believe me, Brain A, in 1986, was a rootkit. When it infected the side zero, cylinder zero, sector number one on the five and quarter inch floppy disk, it copied the original boot sector to the very end of the floppy and marked it as a bad sector. And then whenever you were running on an infected PC, if you would use interrupt 13 to read the infected boot sector from the infected floppy, brain, which would already be in memory, would intercept that read request and give you the clean boot sector instead from the very end of the drive. 
So for all practical purposes, that's a rootkit. Now, if only the original writers of Stuxnet had taken it upon themselves to copy the brain virus and write their name, address and phone number in the boot sector of a machine, it would have been a lot easier to attribute the virus to whoever originally wrote it. While we're speaking about the brain virus, you uh, recently took a trip to Lahore in, in Pakistan to actually track down the people who originally wrote the brain virus. I mean, what was the original thought behind that? I know it was the 25 years anniversary. Did you just think maybe a quick trip to Pakistan might be fun? <laughs> well, uh, I've been looking at the brain floppy we had sitting in our lab for years and years. We had it. Uh, we found basically a binder which contained the first 100 viruses when we were cleaning up the lab, and it was tucked somewhere in one of the cupboards. And we took brain, the first out of the out of the binder, and put it on display as some sort of a um, memory display, memorabilia. And and when 25 years was getting closer to happening, we had a meeting in December 2010 discussing that you know it's going to be 25 years. Should we do something about this? And and our media people had different stupid ideas, like yeah, let's have a social media campaign to raise awareness, which wasn't really what I wanted. So I suggested that why don't I go and, and try to find these guys? We have an address, and of course, uh, that's what we did. Everyone else thought that's a great idea. I was stupid enough to to decide to go to Pakistan, which really isn't a holiday destination. I'll, I'll tell you that. And and the the interesting part is that what I basically did is that I simply went to the address listed inside the boot sector of Brain. I, I went to 730 Nisab Iqbal Akbal town, which is the address in Lahore, Pakistan, which is in northern Pakistan. I I, uh, I found the building. I knocked on the door. And the same guys opened the door. They are still there in the same address 25 years later. It's amazing because you, you can't imagine uh, nowadays a virus writer, A, writing details about where they are, what their number is, who they are even. But you certainly couldn't imagine them sitting around waiting for people to, to call them up or, or to come and visit them for, for a fix. Right. And, and of course, the reason why they put it there is that they never thought they were doing anything criminal or bad. And it wasn't criminal. Obviously, there were no laws against virus writing in, in 1986. And while they did receive a number of calls from, from around the world, nobody ever visited them before. I was the first one to actually go there. It's, it's amazing to, to think 25 years and no one paid a visit and said, I saw your virus. Yeah. And then for those listeners who want to see more detail, we actually have a YouTube video of this. If you just Google for first PC virus video, you'll find it. Yeah, it was, uh, it was amazing to, to watch the video and actually see the people still in the same building 25 years later, openly talking about the virus, why they created it. And I understand they also did a short interview with Time magazine, I think back in back in the 80s, where they talked about it. It's just hard to believe they're, they're still there doing the same thing they were doing 25 years ago. Well, they're not writing viruses anymore. They ne- never wrote anything else than, than, than Brain. But uh, otherwise, yeah, they, they, they run a software company. Well, they didn't say they still write viruses, but uh, with the way viruses are nowadays, people don't usually admit to writing them anymore. That's right. It's not It's not what it used to be. Obviously, with Brain, it was a bit of fun. Can I do that? Can I make a machine do something that it can't, well, it shouldn't do? But I guess now, as you're, as you're saying, it's, it's all moved towards malware, criminals trying to make money from things. That's, that's, that's the obvious. And that's probably the biggest single change I've seen in my career. And I, I still remember... The very first virus we found, which actually was created to make money, this was in 2003. We were looking at this one virus sample that came in, and we we, uh, we tried to figure out why it dropped a proxy. It dropped a uh, hacked version of the Wingate SOX4 proxy to the system, and the version had been hacked so that uh, it was completely invisible. So all the infected machines had a full two-way SOX4 proxy sitting on their system, and they had no idea about it. And every time they reboot, this, the proxy would restart. And we're like, looking at this functionality and 
discussing it with the guys in the lab that, okay, I wonder why it drops a proxy. Maybe these guys want to later on, I don't know, tell that through the infected machines while they're hacking something so they don't get caught, something like that. And then maybe a month later, we were running some test systems which were infected by this particular virus, and we saw massive amounts of traffic, and we looked closer what the traffic was, and it was Viagra spam. And then it all clicked, oh my God, these guys are infecting computers so they can send spam email through the computers. And that was only eight years ago, 2003. And obviously today, 99% of, of the stuff we see is financially motivated. Obviously not much of it is motivated by spam bots anymore, although that still goes on. But things like banking Trojans, keyloggers to steal your credit card numbers and, and what have you. Ransom Trojans seem to be all the rage right now where the latest Trojans take your data and, and ask for ransom to get the files back. It's kind of hard to believe that that was only eight years ago. I mean, when you look back at it, it seems like that was always the way things were. It was always writing it to, to make money out of people. But it's it's only been eight years. It's kind of changed the landscape. And I just remember the name of that virus. It's a virus called Fizzer, F-I-Z-Z-E-R, which otherwise is a completely unremarkable virus in the history of malware, except for this fact that it is the first one we know was from the start to finish created to make money for the others. Well, I guess the, the big question is, it, where do you see things going? I mean, people have been talking about mobile viruses now, saying this is the year of mobile viruses for three or four years now. Are we finally upon you know the year of mobile viruses? I mean, things like Zeus are now have mobile portions to it. Is that what you're seeing now coming through? I hope. It's not going to be the year of mobile viruses. I hope we, we can still keep that back for a couple of more years. In fact, I do see mobile security as as one of the very few success stories we have in all of computer security. Think about it. Almost everything we try to do, we fail in it. Like like antivirus industry has been trying to stop Windows viruses for forever, and obviously we failed. We can, I mean, we see more new PC malware being written today than ever before. So that's a failure. We be, might be able to detect a big part of them, but nevertheless. I mean, we, we failed in stopping the problem. We, the industry, we failed in stopping spam. We see spam as a major issue still today in 2011. But mobile security, we still in 2011 haven't seen a major outbreak on any mobile platform. It could have happened, could have happened many times over. But thanks to the early work done by the designers of the mobile phone operating systems, by the mobile phone hardware vendors, by the operators and by the security community, um, we have at least partially succeeded in something. It's not going to last forever, but so far, so good. Do you see this as a, a success story, as you said, or do you see it more as a case of it, it isn't yet a big enough target because you can't say that one definitive platform is you know, 80% of the market like you can with Windows. You've got you've got people using iOS on uh, the i platform, the Apple platform. You've got people using Android. You've got people using Nokia. And then you've still got a, a large population using phones that aren't smart at all. They're just normal phones and all they do is telephone. Once people start to embrace more of a, a single platform and begin using it for things like online banking and things where attackers can make money, cause it to become a realistic target for malware and virus writers? The market shares absolutely play a part, but it is a little bit different game. First of all, we have to remember that there are more phones on this planet than computers. So overall, it's a bigger target than, than computers. And, and the, the main market share 
statistic that plays into the current situation actually has nothing to do with the split between the different mobile phone operating system and everything to do with the fact that if you take all the computers on this planet, 55% of the computers run Windows XP. Let me repeat that. 55% of all the computers on this planet run Windows XP, which is 11 years old. And if you take all the common operating systems, all the Linux versions, uh, Mac OS X, all versions of Windows, Windows Vista, Windows 7, and Windows XP, obviously Windows XP is the weakest in, in its security model of all these common operating systems. So from the point of view of the criminals, they've never had it so good. They have this huge target, which is not only the biggest, it's also the easiest, which means the attackers would be stupid if they would waste any of their time and money right now targeting any other platform than Windows XP. Targeting Windows 7 makes no sense, targeting Mac OS X makes no sense, targeting Android, iPhone, Nokia, Symbian makes no sense. Of course, it will start making sense in a year, year and a half, when Windows XP will finally drop beyond Windows 7. Windows 7 will become the world's most common operating system in a year and a half. And, and of course, Windows 7 can be hacked, is being hacked, but it's obviously a harder target than Windows XP. And maybe then we'll start seeing some of these attackers, well, wake up and smell the coffee and look around and realize that there were other targets, including mobile phones. And the fact that mobile phones can be used to steal money in ways that you simply cannot do with computers. You might still remember how big problem we had with uh, PC dialers, basically PC malware, which would use your modem to dial to expensive numbers, which completely died out because we don't have modems anymore. You, you can't make phone calls with your computer anymore. But guess what? You can at least still make phone calls with your mobile phone. And we are now seeing the first examples of mobile phone trojans that dial out. Well, for, for example, we saw one which dials out to South Pole to a special number, which actually doesn't go to South Pole, gets rerouted to the city of Prague in Czech Republic, yet they charge you as if you would have called South Pole. And calling South Pole is pretty expensive. And, uh, they basically pocket the money difference between calling, let's say, from Austria to Czech Republic and calling from Austria to South Pole. Somebody's making money and uh, you're losing the money because you had an infection in your mobile phone. Those kind of attacks, they go way back. Even even before kind of uh, PC dialers, they, they went to you know, toll fraud and things like that where people were using phone systems and calling expensive 0900 numbers and things like that. Again, a case of things looping back around and old attacks are again new. Everything old is new again. It's, it's a full circle. Um, one of the things I wanted to get your opinion on, it's it's something that came across my newsfeed a couple of days ago, is, is they're making a movie of uh, the I Love You virus. I yes. wanted to get your opinion, because obviously you've seen the I Love You virus. Is this kind of a situation where they're glamorizing virus writing to, to really make much sense? I know Hollywood are short on ideas, but uh, making a movie <laughs> of a virus seems to be uh, the next step in crazy. I mean, they've done the, the games, they, they've made movies out of things like Doom, and <laughs> Now they're making movies of viruses. I mean, what's your opinion? What's next? I love you. I'm guessing it's not going to be a great movie. Uh, I mean, what can you... Well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe maybe I'll go and see it when it actually comes out. I actually think they already made one movie in the Philippines, in, in the local language, about the same thing. Um, and, and I Love You was written in Philippines, so that's, that's the connection. And this is now the uh, English remake of that original movie, as far as I could understand. And yeah, sure, it's going to glamorize virus writers, which in a way you could also say Matrix glamorized hackers, if you want. So I'm not really too worried about that. Uh, the, the guy who wrote I Love You in 2000 was still among the group of virus writers who did it for 
you know, for bragging rights, for street credibility, for uh, wanting to cause chaos, maybe. And uh, they weren't really the kind of online criminals that we would really worry about. I, I worry much more about the kind of criminals that make millions and are ready to defend their operations and who know who their main enemy is, who, of course, are us, the security companies. And the downside in all of that is that these guys know who we are and where we are. And, and all that boils down to the fact that nowadays, unlike 20 years ago, nowadays, nowadays we actually have to worry about physical security as well. In the news recently, it was uh, Eugene Kaspersky's son was, was kidnapped. And there hasn't been any information released about whether or not that was directly linked to the work that he does. But it does make you wonder whether or not there is a physical safety aspect there. If you're affecting the bottom line of these people who are trying to make money out of malware and viruses, then obviously there's a physical threat there. Yeah, I, I know Eugene pretty well. I haven't discussed the kidnapping of Vanja with, with him. I really hope it wasn't related to his work. I hope it was just some random gang after money. But this is the kind of things we have to have to take into account nowadays. There's been a, the odd occasion where there's been messages sent through viruses to, to researchers. I mean, have you ever had anything specifically sent through to you? Yeah, I've seen messages sent to me multiple times. Most of them, though, a, a while ago. For example, I remember viruses who said, Nico, cut your ponytail, which was a reference to my hairstyle. And I do also remember seeing viruses, multiple viruses, which had a note inside saying, copyright Mikko Hyppönen, trying to put the blame on me. Nice, nice tricks like that. But I'm not really worried about that. Uh, I, I, I do know security researchers who've received direct threats and, and, and things like that. Another thing that worries me was what happened in Kiev last year, where uh, this fairly large data center was burned down after they kicked out a bunch of online criminal sites from the network, most likely as a way of, of uh, scaring other operators in the area not doing the same thing. So this this thing is getting closer, these online risks are getting closer and closer to real world risks. And that might be the nastiest development I've seen during my career. Certainly, if you're dealing with organized crime, then as soon as you start to affect the bottom line, then you become a target as well. Well, I'm based in Helsinki, Finland, and they just a month ago opened a new high-speed rail link connecting Helsinki with St. Petersburg in Russia, which is absolutely one of the hotspots on our map of online crime. And I got to tell you, I, uh, I didn't find that just to be good news. For some reason, now that the St. Petersburg downtown is only three hours away, it seems to be just a bit too close. You have to wonder who funded the development for that. Well, I'm sure there are some upsides there as well. So to bring us full circle back to the original topic of your first keynote, uh, is this the first time you've talked at a first conference? Um, no, actually I spoke there, but it was maybe six years ago, so a while back. What do you find really interesting about FIRST? It's kind of a, a unique conference in the way that it moves around to different countries, and I really wanted to get your take on, on what you thought about the FIRST conference. Well, the most unique thing about it is, is the crowd. It's quite different from the average Black Hat or Virus Bulletin or, or something like, or RSA kind of crowd, because very big part of the employees are government officials or uh, tri tightly connected to government entities because they work for governmental search or work for the for, for uh, some sort of national search or something like that, so which basically means these are the guys who are directly in the front lines. They know what's, what's happening and they work directly with cases that you might otherwise not hear about, like cases like targeted attacks against public officials or politicians and, and things like that. So the discussions you hear about and you get to share in first are unique, and that's why I find it so interesting. Well, it looks like the first conference this year is really shaping up to be a great event. I really look forward to, uh, to hearing your keynote. 
and maybe grabbing a beer after the event as well to talk about the stuff you can't talk about. The first beer is on me. Well, thank you very much for joining us and really looking forward to your keynote. There's certainly lots of interesting things that you can teach us about the last 25 years of viruses and malware. So I look forward to seeing the presentation. All right. Thanks, Chris. Take care. Thanks for listening to this interview on the official first podcast. You've been listening to Martin McKay from the Network Security Podcast. And Christian Riley from the Eurotrash Security Podcast. You can find out more about the FIRST conference and this podcast at www.first.org. Thank you very much for listening. See you in Vienna. Vienna.